everyone. I'm Tim Lever, one of the partners in the employment team here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Uh, welcome to this, our latest Espresso podcast, a series where we look at topical issues for our clients over a cup of coffee. So sit back, relax and make that cuppa. Today's episode is part two of our short series discussing some of the employment law consequences of some of the proposals that we've divined from various of the Labour Party's speeches and proposal papers in the run-up to the election next year. In our first Espresso podcast of this season, we started the ball rolling with a little bit of crystal ball gazing based around some themes that were emerging. Now we want to try to drill down a bit into what we think Labour will prioritise if they take power and what it could mean for our clients and the way they operate their business. Given the amount there is to say in this area, we thought uh, this podcast risked being, uh, becoming less coffee break length and more lunch break length. Uh, but we thought, well, you can't have too much of a good thing. So we've decided to produce an unexpected bonus third instalment as well. So watch out for that in the new year. Today, we'll look initially at what we think Labour will prioritise, and then we'll dive into some of the detail on potential changes to the rights of individuals. The third part of our mini-series will concentrate on potential changes with a more collective focus, and then step back and look at some key takeaways for employers. As before, I have my colleagues Peter Frost. Hello. And Sean McKinley. Hello joining me today. So Peter, if you don't mind kicking us off, uh, I recall you commented on our last podcast that Labour's planned reforms to employment law are really quite ambitious and if implemented, they might require some significant changes in the way that employers conduct their businesses. I mean, how much of that in reality is just hype and vote garnering and how much is really like to get onto the statute book? Thanks, Tim. That's a, a really good question. I think the one thing we can be pretty certain of is that Labour will introduce an employment bill very early on in their administration. Angela Rayner has repeatedly said it will be within the first 100 days. I'd be a little cautious about that timing because quite a number of the proposals will require prior consultation as well as a lot of thought. So it may be that what we see is in fact a series of employment bills with some of what I would call the easier to implement proposals included in the first one. And one example would be making sick pay a day one right, while some of the more wide ranging ones like the boosting of collective bargaining, which we'll look at in the next uh, podcast, I think they're going to come in somewhere down the line after I think a pretty extensive consultation exercise because they're really breaking new ground there. So what's going to be in the bill or bills? Well, I think we can be confident that Labour will try to be bold with their proposals uh, and seek to introduce, at least in some shape or form, much of what's in the green paper. Now, the reason I say this is that their plans, I think, are driven by two factors. One uh, is political in nature, and that really comes from Angela Rayner. And the other is more economic. And I detect the hand there of Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, so let's look at the political driver. I think this is just simply a reflection of the fact that core Labour voters expect a Labour administration to increase employment rights for workers and trade unions. And just about every Labour administration I've lived under, and I have lived under quite a few, they've all done that. The only one that hasn't was Jim Callaghan, and that was only because his hands were tied so much by the dire economic situation then facing the country, which had just had to go to the IMF for a bailout and by the fact that the previous Wilson administration had already done much to increase those rights. 
Just looking at the trade unions, one mustn't forget, of course, that they still provide much of Labour's funding and they expect to see a return on their money for their members, just like any other backer. The economic factor, now this is more subtle, and I think this has been developed in order to try to get businesses and investors comfortable with Labour's agenda to increase employment rights by stressing the benefits to business in doing so. Now, with very little money to play with and little scope for raising taxes, which already stand at a very high rate historically, Labour, just like Liz Truss and just like every other incumbent government, is seeking the elixir of sustainable economic growth. But their problem is that predictions for global growth over the next few years are pretty modest. So what's their solution? Well, they have a macro solution to this, which, as The Economist pointed out in a recent article, is a new form of supply-side economics which fuses traditional free market policies like deregulation with other measures such as industrial subsidies, employment rights and public services. Now, this is actually all spelt out in the introduction to the Green Paper, which is well worth a read. Specifically on employment rights, Labour feels strongly that increasing the UK's productivity, a problem frequently referred to by David Smith, the Sunday Times economics uh, editor, is key, and driving this is workforce productivity. In Labour's view, and they're not alone on this, abolishing zero-hours contracts and giving day one sick pay rights will massively contribute to that, along with the improvement to childcare and healthcare. Expanding the, the range of what are called day one rights is also thought to improve job security and stability and to secure improved minimum working conditions. And, and just for our listeners, Peter, when we talk about day one rights, we mean those employment rights and protections that an employee or a worker, as the case may be, would enjoy from the very first day of their employment rather than having to wait for a qualifying period to expire. That's quite right, Tim. Thank you. Uh, of course, history tells us that governments that start off with radical plans often have to row back on some of them because of economic or political realities. And while many businesses and investors may well welcome the relative stability and frankly, the lack of drama that a new Labour administration will bring, I think some of them may be rather less enamoured with some of the more grandiose plans like day one unfair dismissal rights and the proposed massive growth of collective bargaining. And don't forget that on zero hours contracts, one of the key points made by the Taylor report uh, in 2012 under the Cameron coalition government was that one of the reasons for the exponential growth of those contracts was the flexibility that it gave to both individuals and organisations in the gig economy. And so Labour may well face opposition to an outright ban on them. Uh, in similar vein, banning hiring and firing is a great soundbite. But where does that actually leave businesses that genuinely can't afford to maintain terms and are faced with a union that refuses to budge in negotiations? Something, of course, we've seen quite a lot of in the public sector of late. Some commentators are predicting that the Conservative Party is currently in such disarray, frankly similar to that faced by Labour at the end of the 1970s and the early 1980s, that Labour are planning for the possibility of a two-term administration. Now, if that's true, and I think there is some truth in it, we could well find that Labour adopts an incremental approach to its planned employment reforms, such that some of the easier wins are adopted early 
and some initially modest improvements made to employment rights, while some of the more radical measures are held back in the hope that businesses will eventually support them and that the economic climate makes it easier to introduce them. So if I'm to summarise that, I think what we're saying is we can expect an employment bill pretty early on and that really any employment bill is likely to contain quite a few of the proposals that were in the original Green Paper. Yep, I think that's exactly right. But don't forget that even some of those proposals included initially might be diluted to make them more palatable for businesses uh, and investors. Very good point. Thank you. Uh, That's very helpful. So let's have a look now in some more detail at some of the proposals and specifically what might be coming our way in terms of changes to the rights of individuals. Uh, Sean, if I can bring you in at this point, what's your crystal ball telling you right now? Well, the crystal ball is showing a picture of a new employment status, but I'll be honest, the crystal ball is still quite cloudy. As we mentioned in part one of the podcast, Labour plans to reverse a key plank of the Blair government's reforms when they introduced a new worker status in 1998. Our resident legal historian, Peter, tells me that the reason for this new middle category was that new Labour, as it was then, felt that there was a class of people who were at the time designated as self-employed but not employees, but were in practice so dependent on one particular business that they were vulnerable without any rights at all. And so the new worker status was born and certain statutory rights like holiday pay became available to them. As a reminder, Labour's new proposal would combine all of those currently classed as employees and workers and create a two-tier system where you'd have, on the one hand, workers with employment rights and the genuinely self-employed, on the other hand, who would not have those rights. It isn't entirely clear why Labour feels that the Blair reform should be ditched now. And we are aware that the Conservatives have, ever since the Taylor report in 2012, tried to find a workable statutory definition of worker, And they find it so difficult that they effectively give up. Labour is likely to be aware of this, and so it's aiming for something more radical. But the proposal begs a number of questions. Firstly, how is the distinction between new style worker and the genuinely self-employed to be made? The old case law that applied before 1998 wouldn't be relevant here because it applied to a narrower category of employee than this proposed new worker category. Secondly, as I mentioned in our first podcast on this topic, what will happen to the tax status of those workers who are currently classed as self-employed for tax purposes? Would they be covered by payroll, which would mean a significant number of workers would in fact be worse off? And if that isn't right, we're back to having to find a workable test for identifying what is a worker, which appears to be too difficult to do. Thirdly, What if both the would-be employer and the would-be worker, in fact, both want the relationship to be one of self-employment? How important will the label they apply be when the test is applied? How are genuine cases going to be sifted from those where the would-be employer is imposing the self-employed label on the would-be worker? Will the new legislation apply a test by reference to, for example, a list of key factors combined with a rebuttable presumption of worker status, similar to the approach taken by the EU in the new platform directive? Labour will presumably have thought about each of these points, and it's said to have some eminent employment practitioners advising it on its proposals. But so far, its response has been unclear, and squaring the circle on the tax issue in particular is going to be tricky for them. 
Also, Peter referred earlier to Labour's proposal to increase the number of day one rights. So as you said earlier, Tim, these are those rights available to employees or workers from the time that they start employment. In line with the economic approach that Peter mentioned, Labour presumably contends that in relation to rights like sick pay, one can see the potential benefits. Employees are not forced to come into work with infectious illnesses. And for example, those with mental health issues don't have the additional stress of receiving no pay. Similarly, extending family rights gets more women into work, which is desirable in and of itself, and can also help address the gender pay gap and increase productivity. However, the main issue to think about here is the proposed inclusion of unfair dismissal as a day one right. Currently, new employees will often be initially employed subject to a probationary period in which the employer can assess if the employee has the skills and aptitude to do the job, and the employee can check if the new job and the new organisation works for them. If either decide to end the relationship, they can do so easily and cheaply. And this is thought to be a business-friendly safety net, which incentivizes employers to hire employees. If an employee had unfair dismissal protection from the get-go, however, then the employer would have to comply with the procedural requirements of employment protection law when ending the employment of a new employee, even if it turns out that employee is not right from the job very early on. A labour might say that if an employer wishes to dismiss an employee, and isn't prepared to comply with the legal requirements, well, it has the option of negotiating a statutory settlement agreement. And no doubt some employers will do this. But for others, and in particular startups or small businesses, or those with a rapid churn in staff, this could well be an unwelcome additional cost and could act as a significant disincentive to hiring or cause employers to explore a different hiring model. Conversely, an employee who wishes to bail out early, having realised, for example, they've made an error in accepting a job, could still do so with relative impunity. And the issue is potentially exacerbated by the parallel proposal to remove the cap on unfair dismissal compensation. So currently, this is set as the lower of one year salary and a prescribed amount, which increases year on year with inflation, and is currently set at £105,707. The reason for this change is that Labour feels in principle that an employee who is unfairly dismissed should be fully compensated, as is the case with EU-derived rights like discrimination, and indeed the domestic rights of whistleblowers. As I mentioned on part one of this podcast, most employees can be expected to secure an alternative position within a year, and so it may be in practice this proposal doesn't affect many claims, but it does raise three particular issues. Firstly, Is it really Labour's intention to give departing directors the right to recover potentially very large sums of money? Executive directors are employed on service contracts and they're likely to be employees and therefore entitled to protection against unfair dismissal. It's almost invariably the case that directors can depart quite suddenly without due process and and this is often in the company's interest. Labour's proposal would potentially drive a coach and horses through the current regime, requiring companies to publish remuneration codes designed to limit compensation payable to departing directors in order to protect shareholders. This is because those codes often contain an exemption, allowing payments to be made to a director to satisfy their legal rights. If it's not actually Labour's intention to protect executive directors in this way, and that would be a surprising outcome, It would be necessary to exclude such directors from the ambit either of unfair dismissal altogether or to continue to apply a cap for them alone. 
Neither is particularly logical or satisfactory. Secondly, employees who consider that they've been unfairly dismissed may, going forward, be less likely to bring discrimination claims or whistleblowing claims. Now, this could have both pros and cons. On the pro side, we have all too often seen ex-employees bringing tenuous discrimination and whistleblowing claims purely to up the ante and improve their negotiating position. Arguably, seeing less of those would be a good thing. However, on the con side, the proposal could also discourage employees from bringing genuine discrimination or whistleblowing claims. Arguably, bringing a pure unfair dismissal claim attracts less stigma than accusing your former employer of discrimination or being seen as a troublemaker, as is often the case with whistleblowers. This would be regrettable, as it is in the public interest that employers who mistreat staff in this way should be called out. And finally, will removing the cap on unfair dismissal protection, if it becomes a day one right, open the floodgates to such claims? And how will the employment tribunals cope with that? On a related note, it's also relevant that Labour plans to extend the time for bringing claims in the employment tribunal. In most cases, the primary time limit for employment-related statutory claims is three months, subject to the early conciliation period. It was deliberately set at a low level because the intention of industrial tribunals, as they were back in the 1970s, was to provide quick and cheap justice. However, the reality in the employment tribunal system has long since moved on and both the procedure and the substance of claims can be complex. There is an argument that a short limitation period gives the party certainty, but a three-month limitation looks more and more out of place when you compare it to, for example, the three-year period for bringing personal injury claims or the six-year limitation period for bringing most claims in the civil courts. Labour hasn't said what it intends to change the period to, but smart money would be on six months. Thanks. I mean, so in the light of those challenges, do, do we really think that Labour will make unfair dismissal a day one right? And, well, to compound that challenge, to, to remove the compensation limit? And if, if so, what's going to be the knock-on effect to the Employment Tribunal Service, which is already struggling under its existing caseload? I think we agree that it is unlikely Labour will ultimately make unfair dismissal a day one right. I think it's more likely that the current two-year qualifying period will be significantly reduced in order to enable more claimants to bring unfair dismissal claims, potentially with the transition period so that businesses can get used to the new regime. On the other hand, I think it is quite likely that the cap will be removed, but I would be really surprised if there wasn't some adjustment to ensure executive directors can't use the tribunal system to circumvent REMCO policies maybe perhaps taper changes for higher earners who might be perceived as needing less protection. As to what this means for employment tribunals, additional funding seems unlikely at the moment. I do wonder if Labour, particularly given its apparent inspiration from Atipidean models, might look to introduce compulsory mediation of claims as a way of reducing the workload of the tribunals. Like This would be controversial and likely opposed by the unions, but it would be consistent with the civil courts where compulsory mediation seems to be the direction of travel. Thank you. Um, that's some pretty interesting stuff there on uh, statutory claims. Just taking a slightly different tack now, uh, another emotive topic for Labour is zero hours contracts. Uh, whatever the pros and cons of this debate, Labour have pledged to scrap zero-hours contracts. And so is that actually something they're likely to do, Sean? 
Yeah, I think this is something they're likely to do. As with other reforms, inspiration seems to come from New Zealand. Fortunately, one of our former colleagues, Grace Stacey Jacobs, now a member of the Bell Gully team in Wellington, has been able to tell us what was done there. So New Zealand has restricted the use of availability provisions. These are clauses in a contract which stipulate that an employee's work is conditional on the employer making it available. But if the employer does make work available, then the employee is required to be freely accepted. These provisions are only permitted where the contract specifies agreed guaranteed minimum hours of work, and they can only be used where the employer can show they have good business reasons for needing such a provision and where reasonable compensation is paid to the employee for making themselves available. We think Labour could well use a similar model for their proposal, although it should be said this might cause more problems in the UK than it appears to have done in New Zealand because of the size of the gig industry in the UK and the sheer number of organisations that use such arrangements. It's worth noting, though, that the New Zealand legislation is not apparently intended to catch genuine casual employment arrangements where employees are entitled to decline to accept work and such an approach could be attractive to labour if they can ensure this is, is implemented in practice. Conversely, though, we understand that the New Zealand courts have held that the legislation applies to certain overtime provisions, so Labour will need to be aware of unintended consequences. And never it was thus the unintended consequences of legislative change. Uh, that's very interesting. Um, I think I'm going to push my luck in terms of timing and ask us just to cover one final topic before the dregs of the coffee cup have gone. Um, Sean, in part one, you touched on Labour's proposal in the Green Paper to narrow the gender pay gap. Are we going to see some developments in that area as well? Yes, because this is something on which there's currently a fair amount of cross-party consensus, and clearly it's a key issue for the UK, given the number of women in the workforce. The Green Paper states that Labour will bring forward a number of measures to end the gender pay gap and pay gaps for those with other protected characteristics, such as race, ethnicity and disability. And the TUC recently reiterated its support for the Labour Party's proposals for the introduction of a disability pay gap reporting and conducted some analysis demonstrating that non-disabled men earn on average 30% more than disabled women. This increased impact for those who are in more than one disadvantaged group, which is called intersectionality, will presumably also be something that Labour seeks to address in its measures. But those measures are not yet spelt out, and they may not have even been developed. One that's mentioned is the requirement that outsource workers must be included in pay gap reporting. And this will, of course, mean that those outsourcing work must ensure that they have the right to call for the necessary information from their service providers. It won't be straightforward, though, for Labour to make disability or ethnicity pay gap reporting mandatory. For example, will they provide an exhaustive list of ethnicities that must be included? And how granular is reporting going to need to be? How is the legislation going to deal with data gaps caused by employees who, for privacy reasons, do not want to disclose their ethnicity or whether they have a disability? You may remember that Labour's Green Paper transitions from its discussion of pay gap reporting to a discussion of equal pay for equal work and risks conflating the two. I mentioned in part one the EU Pay Transparency Directive, which on at first sight appears to mirror the UK gender pay reporting requirements, but on closer analysis goes much, much further. For example, it requires an organisation to break down its workforce into categories of work undertaken that's of equal value, which in itself is a highly complex exercise requiring a job evaluation scheme. 
And then where this reporting discloses a pay gap of more than 5% in relation to any category of employee, and that gap can't be justified on the basis of a non-discriminatory criteria or rectified within six months, the directive requires an organisation to effectively submit to a pay audit. It's unlikely that national law implementing the EU pay transparency directive will be enacted until 2025, maybe 2026. And so this could well be one of the areas where Labour will try and consult and maybe delay with a view to bringing its own measures into force at a similar time to the EU legislation, perhaps later with the benefit of seeing how other jurisdictions in the EU approach the challenges in practice. This delay would also, has to be said, give Labour the opportunity to reflect on the potential impact of equal pay legislation on businesses. Only recently, Birmingham City Council, a Labour-run local authority, was declared bankrupt, owing in part to its inability to meet huge equal pay liabilities. Uh, for any of our listeners who are particularly interested or concerned, or both, at the EU Pay Transparency Directive and how it could affect UK businesses as well as European ones, we'll shortly be running a separate espresso podcast on that topic. So watch this space. Thank you, Sean. Uh, real food for thought there. Uh, Peter, just to round us out, uh, if you don't mind, what's the one thing that stands out to you as being of greatest significance to our clients? I think it's a close run thing, Tim. I think it's between day one unfair dismissal rights, if indeed this ever happens. And that's because of the change in mindset that this will require from so many employers. And so it's between that one and a change to single worker status. But on balance, I think it's the latter, simply because it begs so many questions, in my mind anyway, as to how the many disparate groups now making up the UK's workforce are going to be categorised and how the tax rules are going to apply to them. I'm afraid I can see this becoming a real headache for employers. And I do think this is an area Labour need to give much further thought to. Yeah, I mean, that has to be right, although a combination of those two things would, of course, create an even greater headache for our clients. Uh, one thing we haven't mentioned so far is non-competes, a subject that's close to my heart. Um, neither the Le uh, Labour Green paper nor the subsequent statements at the Labour Party conference contained any comment on the Conservative government's decision to restrict the use of non-competition clauses. Uh, as listeners may recall, the government made a big splash about this uh, as a post-Brexit measure to unleash the potential of UK innovation and competitiveness. Uh, the irony being that the measure is, in fact, uh, following on the coattails of a similar initiative led by the left of centre Biden administration in the US, which is attacking the use of non-competes for rather different reasons. Uh, there could be various reasons for that. Uh, Labour might want to wait and see if the government actually finds parliamentary time to bring its proposals into force. Uh, plenty of sceptics, including the three of us, I think, doubt that that will happen uh, this side of the general election. Uh, alternatively, Labour might perhaps agree with it, perhaps for different reasons, though, adopting a similar approach to that in the US. Uh, but they don't see it as the biggest issue of the day. Either way, while we can't rule out Labour adopting the current proposals or something similar, uh, the fact that it doesn't even get a mention in the document or anywhere else that we've seen suggests that there's little chance of any changes to the use of non-competes uh, in the immediate near future, at least. Um, but again, we are just gazing into that crystal ball. So we've covered quite a lot today uh, in this podcast. I think we'll have to leave it there for now. Uh, time to go and wash up your mug, everyone. Please look out for part three 
of the Expresso podcast landing uh, in a few weeks' time, and we look forward to welcoming you back shortly. Goodbye for now, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.